Yeah. Alan, hi. How are you doing? Hey, Rich. Top of the league. So uh, we're gonna, we might put the camera on this. So I'm going to do the old, I teed you up for that one from our, <laughs> from our previous chat. Why are you top of the league, Alan? I feel top of the league because we are top of the league. And it's just such a big season for us. And that's all that matters. If Chelsea are playing well and we're winning games and so on, everything else falls into place. Excellent. Well, anyway, it was great to chat and hopefully we'll catch up again soon. <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, look, um, I was thinking back to when we when we first met and we went for a coffee, um, I believe, on on Richmond Hill. We did. And um, at, at that time, we didn't been introduced by, I think, Carrie. Carrie, then Beddingfield. Yes. OK, it's all coming together. So we've been introduced and we went on a date and we had a coffee and we chatted. And I can't how many, how, remember how many years ago that was. Um, do you have any idea? Well, before we get on to the date, I think I'm worried for the, for the sake of the listeners that you may have misrepresented what we did. And I want to clarify what you mean by we went on a date. Right, OK, you, you clarify know, it. Yeah, for both of our sakes that we met for a coffee <laughs> Because we were working together at the time. Yes. Um, okay. And it's got to be, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's got to be 20, six or seven years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and since then, we've had various hairstyles. Um, I've had various facial hairs. So, but here we are. Um, both been on a, an interesting journey, but but today is really focusing on on yours. But it kind of started for me to know what you're up to and the, this whole your your interest in in entrepreneurs and and guiding entrepreneurs. So I'm sort of interested in how how that became your interest. Um, it's it's been organic, although a lot of what I do in my work is to help people work out clear plans and, how, and, and, and directions and goals and all the rest of it. Of course, the cobbler's son has got no shoes and I've tended to go with my gut most of the time and I've followed my instincts most of the time of my career. And so um, it's probably rooted in my um, upbringing, parents, grandparents, et cetera, aunts, uncles, all involved in uh, owning businesses of one sort or another. And um, there was a, I think, like mother's milk, or, you know, from growing up and listening, earliest memories of listening to people talk, family talking about uh, business around the, di the dinner table and hearing what's going on. It all sounded really exciting. And um, there was a joke in my family that my first words weren't mama or dada, but cash flow. <laughs> So these are your these are your earliest memories, um, and that that sort of have a strong theme through, throughout your life. But um, I mean, you make it sound almost like you were quite straight laced, but I'm not sure that's true, is it? I'd say that that the the culture, family culture, was well is straight laced, conservative, small c, um, but I rebelled. Um, I have to say, uh, uh, pity my parents because 
um, wasn't their fault, but I just really wanted to do my own thing and and loved and loved music and initially um, wanted to be a pop star um, and didn't put much effort into school. I didn't like the whole academic process. I didn't like being in a classroom and chalk and talk type stuff. I just hate, really hated it. So that's just where I went with it, I suppose. So I, I didn't go to uni and want to get out into the workplace because that's what I enjoyed and liked the atmosphere of, of the work of work and so on. Yeah. So what, what were your what were your family's expectations of you? Um, I imagine they were never overt. Um, nothing that I could uh, say, well, either my mother, father, as an only child, so that either my mother or father said, oh, we'd like to do this, we'd like to do that. There were no, there was no discussion about it. So I'm, I'm, there's a bit of assuming here of, of sort of what um, I imagine and felt rather than they said, and that was um, to be a successful uh, I, uh, uh, doctor, lawyer, profession of some kind, accountant, something like that, and maybe to follow my father into his business. But by my mid-teens, um, I remember going and seeing my father's factories that he had with my uncle. Uh, they owned them together. And I remember going into my father's office, which is in central London, and I vaguely remember him showing me stuff about it, but it didn't appeal. So may, there was never again any overting of uh, we're expecting to follow um, into my business. But certainly there was a sense of um, doing well at school. And I, they spent a lot of money on my education. And I went to, quote unquote, the best schools in London Um and most of my friends, if not all of them, went to Oxbridge and went on to do fairly straight late stuff, whereas I was drumming in a band and, and you know, wanted to do something different. And, and that was, you know, um, so no, I, I know how I come across and how I sound, but it's been anything but a straight lace conservative life. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that I find that fascinating, and I love these these kinds of stories. And and you know, you've worked with lots of um, entrepreneurs and people that have ideas and want to do things differently. Do you do you think you know each person's got their unique story? But but do you think there's a common theme there in that that people have you know they might have been given opportunities, they may not, but ultimately they they've always been set on trying to find their own way, make their own mistakes. Autonomy. Yeah. Yeah, um, wanting wanting to to go their own way. Um, usually, maybe it's because of the people I meet. There are some exceptions. Wanting to contribute, you know, uh, do something good, change the world, um, do something positive, um, and but the, above all, go their own way. Above all. All of all of the entrepreneurs I've met have got that in common, one way or the other, and do their own thing and not be beholden to anybody. Yeah, yeah, and and, I, and I'm assuming then that you can relate to that, and that's yeah. one of the yeah. reasons why you sort of yeah. slipped, perhaps slipped not yeah. accidentally into this. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because I did a couple of jobs 
after leaving school. I, were, I was an employee at two different firms. I have to say that I'm not sure I was working at those firms for career purposes. It was more to earn some money while I was trying to be a pop star and not earning anything from, from, uh, from drumming or music or gigging or anything. If, on the contrary, put money into it. It cost a fortune to have to keep all that stuff up. So it was, it was really a means to an end. But I did discover by the time I left the second job that this really wasn't for me. And so um, age 21, I went into partnership with, with a, a friend and we started our first business. I started my first business in partnership with somebody and I couldn't imagine ever. I'm, I feel unemployable. And I think most entrepreneurs would say they're unemployable. They could, just can't work for somebody. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 really resonates. That that kind of there's a feel there's a feel to that. So you you had those jobs, and as you say, that was a means to an end. But then you, you develop this this partnership. How, how did that come about? The this sort of the idea and what you actually did. That was because um, the band I was in needed uh, a place to rehearse, and we ended up rehearsing. Um, in a, a rehearsal studio in Waterloo, and uh, it was under the uh, railway track in the uh, under the arches or in an, in one of the arches near Waterloo Station, and the rehearsal studio was called, not surprisingly, the Tunnel, <laughs> and uh, we rehearsed there, and it was a really great place, um, funky area, um, and a lovely man running it, very very nice guy who. And, I became friends with him and used to go there a lot, even if I wasn't rehearsing. And I, I, I spotted an opportunity and, 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 and said to him, Mark Hardy is his name. I haven't seen him for years and years. Um, and I wondered, I, no, I noticed that many of the bands that were rehearsing there, um, including ourselves, would rent sound equipment and bring it into the into the rehearsal studio and there were some good bands that were that that went there and I'm talking about you know a long time ago so this is sort of you know early 70s mid 70s and so on and um there were uh, I'm trying to remember some of the really early bands before I was involved but I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that bands like Free and Hendrix and some big bands mm. did rehearse then when I got involved with it there was you know, I Maiden and um the Drifters and Status Quo and a, a number of others I don't remember them all now but it was it was a well-known place in in its time and but I thought well that's odd you know they Mark was making a lot of money. The the thing that was making the most money was the was the pinball machine. <laughs> Seriously, that was making more money taking cash than the actual hiring of the room. Wow. And and there was a little mini re um, recording desk there as well with some mics, but it was very limited because um, you couldn't do any songs longer than about three and a half minutes because a train would come over. <laughs> you couldn't make this up. It would be so noisy and rumble. The whole place would shake. <laughs> it's Waterloo Station every three and a half, four minutes. So you'd have to listen, wait for a train to pass. Now, 
okay, now we'll start recording. <laughs> and then you'd have, and so it was limited what you could do. And I said, well, I wonder what would happen if we um, get some money together and we buy some sound equipment and rent it to the bands that come here as part of the offer. And we're very lucky um, because both sets of parents said they would lend us what in those days was a few thousand pounds um, to buy some equipment, which we did. And that was the beginning of the, of a business, except I didn't think of it like that as some kind of long-term thing. It was just an opportunity. And I think that's another thing that ties entrepreneurs together. Entrepreneurial thinking, Rich, is the, is spotting an opportunity and doing something about it. And that, took off from there and that became something called a business called muscle music not as in the things you eat but muscles as in the Guns. arms Guns. and that was that shows the state of our sense of humor because we were both five foot five and and we thought wouldn't it be funny let's it's such kid stuff isn't it wouldn't be funny to call it muscle music and the joke is that we're tiny we can hardly lift anything and that but it became successful yeah well that's it i mean you 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 your little aside there about you know spotting the need and taking action you're yeah. kind of implying that that maybe more people spot needs but then a lot actually don't do anything about it yeah that's the point yeah yeah, what, what do you think stops people? Um, the first word that comes up for me is fear, but that that feels a bit harsh. So I think it's attitude to risk, and um, it, it's that the norm, quote unquote, whatever that is, is go to school, go to college or uni, get a job certainly in those days, and hope to stay for life. Yeah. And I noticed that the, 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 the millennials and, and um, generations after mine, after baby boomers, are more open to being more flexible and, and perhaps more risk-taking. But th there's another thing to be really clear about, and that is that I could afford to take a risk. I, had, I always had a safety net. Mm. And not many people, not everyone can say that, you know, came from a very comfortable family. And so, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't that calculation of, oh my God, if this all goes wrong, I'm homeless or I'm out of, you know, maybe not that bad, but certainly uh, towards that. So that also contributed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I, I would say that's probably still a big factor nowadays, isn't it? In terms of, you know, if, if someone decides to start something, but they've got a, you know, a decent nest egg or, or something else that's, that's just there in the background, they know, okay, well, I can give this a good go for a year, two years, five years or whatever. And I'll, I'll be all right. It's very different to someone kind of really gambling everything, which of course people, some people do. Do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That, that's real bravery where, where you're, you're putting your neck on the line and so on. And there's a real, chance of failure meaning something really hurting mm. whereas um i had the luxury of not feeling that fear yeah. so if anything i'd say at that time in my early 20s i was overconfident 
and particularly with the schools I went to, uh, with a sense of entitlement and arrogance that was drummed into us and so on. Um, so there's a, all of that floating around as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Of course, the you know the the conditioning, the social conditioning of yeah. that individual from not just parents but but society, and then the school, the attitude of the school is a is a big player. Yeah. Um. In in that. Um. So so yeah, muscle music. Um. Where where did you take where did you take that next, or where did you go next? Um. Then serendipity, Rich. Uh, in no plan. Uh, a, ba- a band uh, called um, Coliseum 2, which if you're a jazz fan or you know jazz rock, had a very famous drummer in it called, who sadly died recently, called John Heisman. And um, they were rehearsing at the, at the studio, at the, re- at the rehearsal studio. They were renting the gear. And, and then they said, we want to do a tour of Germany and we need we need PA equipment and lighting equipment, which we didn't have. So, okay, we'll go out, we'll get some, and we'll, we'd like to do the tour and go and and go out with you. And, and then the other things. Oh, and by the way, we also want to take one of you uh, with us and to uh, to work on the on the road with us. And I was single at the time. My partner at the time had a young family, so. Um, I was very happy to do it. It was very exciting. And um, that then became the next step in the, in the company's uh, development of having uh, PA systems as opposed to the equipment that the band uses, they, they plug their guitars in, which is known as the backline. And that then became the main revenue stream and the, the stuff we bought at the beginning, I, th- I think we kept, but it went in the background and then gradually we did more and more and more business um, renting PA systems out to bands. Um, and I got more and more interested in live sound engineering. I'm a bit of a nerd and a geek, if you like. And I like, I like all the DBs and kilohertz and I loved um uh, experimenting with different, uh, combining different speakers with different amps and different mixing consoles. I loved all that. Um, and that meant that we, over a period of short time, a couple of years or so, we developed a very, very good quality PA system uh, hire company. And we worked with some really good bands. And um, the, the biggest client that we had uh, was the jam and I went out on the road as the jams sound en- live sound engineer for several years went all around the world with them and the, the, but there, that that said the 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 request by Coliseum 2 to um, go out on the road with our equipment m- meant a huge decision for me and it was a very emotional time because I'd really we'd really tried to be successful with the band we couldn't get a recording contract, which is what we need. You need, you had to have, you couldn't self-publish. Yeah. And our music was too old fashioned for the record companies. The punk was coming in and we were rockers, you know, Wishbone Ash, Deep Purple type music, writing yeah. all our own stuff. Yeah. And we had a very good following in London and gigged all over, over London and Southeast. Um, and 
that meant having to make a choice. If I go out with Colosseum 2, I'm going to have to give up and tell the band members, I'm sorry, I've got, I'm giving it in. Yeah. I'm giving it up. And it was a big decision. But what I noticed in the last couple of years of, of trying to do this pop star stuff, that I, what I loved about drumming and being in this great band, and it was seeing people dancing, having fun, being happy, bringing happiness to people, seeing their faces, the energy of playing in a live gig is just incredible, particularly with a, a good band that you really, um, that we understand, you know, we're all on the same page. And um, I noticed that whenever an, what's called an A&R guy, a record company guy came along, and we'd all say to each other, we've got to play really well tonight because there's an air guard. We've got to no screw ups. We've got to really do well. The joy, no joy. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, I must, I must, I've got to watch everything and make no mistakes rather than just play for the fun of it. Yeah. And so the joy went out of it for me. Yeah. And so it was the right decision. I gave, gave up. And then the best thing of all is I played with lots of, bands that I was live engineering with during their sounding so what well, the sound check in the afternoon because the drummers would always want to go out front and hear what their drum sounded like yeah and I said uh, me I'll yeah. do it I'll do it and then I played with these fantastic bands just jamming for 20 minutes 15 20 minutes and that the, then the drummers could hear or could I have a little bit more treble on the snare please or whatever say yeah. sure and so actually I carried on playing, but for fun. Yeah. And that, that was worked out fine for me. I still do to this day. Yeah. So, so just to be clear then, I mean, essentially you, you taught yourself to be a sound engineer. Mm. That's, that's, that's a hell of an achievement. Nah, <laughs> no, it's easy. No, because, because somebody in the band has to look after the gear. And so um, it's often the drummer, is in, despite all the uh, appearances to the contrary, who's the sensible one in the band. I mean, the person who comes to mind is Nick Mason of Pink Floyd. He's the, been the biographer, the band biographer. He's been the one who's been the peacemaker between those various uh, warring factions. So actually, sitting at the back, the, the drummer's the one who's in control. You see, we keep time. Yeah. We have to be on it. And if we, a bit like a goalie in a, in a, in a football team, if we screw up, everyone notices. Yeah. So there's a sense of being responsible. And so actually, in many ways, the drummer is the band leader. Yeah. Not, not in every band, but often. So I had to look after the band PA from when we began. So I began to learn about all this sound equipment all the way through from when I was 18, 19 and, and loved that. And it was natural to then progress and do little gigs in little pubs and then a bigger pub and a bigger place. And then, and you just learn as you go. Yeah. It wasn't really wasn't that difficult at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think that kind of opportunity would still, do you think that would still happen now? Or do you think it's changed? The whole thing's changed too much. I'm not, I'm not, it's so many years since I've been involved, but um, the last I heard, which is probably two or three years ago when I was, a, I had a client that was in that industry. It, it's more, a little bit more formal. There are now courses. There are now, there's much more training than there used to be. It was much more like the Wild West 
in those days than now. It's become a business and industry. And in those days, it was more fun. It was more rock and roll yeah. and more music than business. And then gradually, as the years became, went by, it became more and more. I mean, it's, um, it sounds a cl- cliched, but accountants led mm. than in those days. Yes. So it's become more, more serious. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, as you know, I, I love, you know, rock music and go to gigs and things. And, and I think those days of, of the band turning up and being a complete mess and not really being able to play their instruments or sing, I, people don't accept the audience won't accept that now in the same way they, you know, they'd be very unhappy in, in those days. It probably happened, you know, it wasn't uncommon. Um, but, um, you know, I want to ask you kind of how rock and roll it was. I guess you'd have to be a bit careful on, on how you answer that. But I can get no, I can give you a really good example because it was just coming to mind when you were saying about audience expectations. Um, how, uh, this shows my age. Have you heard of a band called Hawkwind? Yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I don't know, many, many, anybody who's listening to this, I don't know how many will know them, but they were very alternative, very druggy. Um, the, the, the audience also was very Woodstock generation and so on. And um, they were a, a client, if you like, I don't know what, what to call them, but they certainly they used our sound equipment and went out on the road with them and so on and went to various gigs. And I remember a time when uh, it was in the early days of muscle music and I was learning how to put equipment together and also by trial and error. And in those days, the amplifiers, the electronic bits, not the speakers, tends to be pretty big and get very hot and they had to be there in road cases. Now, I remember doing a gig in with Hawkwind and there was Liquid Len, who was the lighting engineer. <laughs> and uh, it was, and they were, those kind of lights, I can't even remember what they're called now, but they're all swirling all over the place. And there's the smell of joss sticks and patchouli oil and flares. It's all that, right? So you've got the image. So we did Leeds University and the stage was only t- a very s- small step up. And I didn't realise at the time that it's not a good idea to put amplifiers in, in road cases with holes in the top, I thought it would be good to let the heat out. And I, that, what did I know? And so um, I remember, and, and what would happen is people, the band and the roadies that were on, the, on stage would ask for drinks to be brought on stage to them. So people would bring, bring trays, bring trays of beer and hand them up to the band and so on, all through the gig. And, um, and, that, and I, I could see it. It wasn't a big place. So I could see this happening. And then I noticed that somebody was carrying a tray with, full of pints of beer and they tripped and all these, this beer went into these a- amplifier. But instead of which would have been sensible that, that the top is closed and you have fans and all the rest of it, the beer went straight into these enormous, very powerful amplifiers, oh, no. which promptly blew up but they sent us i'm getting geeky now rich it's called dc current but they went so wild that instead of sending sound to the speakers it sent a kind of current that blows speakers up. it's so high yeah and in those days so 
the 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 way the speakers were made if the if the loudspeaker itself get i'm worried about boring people with all this techie stuff but went on fire it would actually follow out out of the box in front towards the audience so this fire came out of the front of one side of the speakers Luckily, nobody was hurt, didn't go near anyone. Yeah. And I, oh my God, this is awful. You know, this, the end of the gig and all the rest of it. I remember the, a member of the audience weaving, <laughs> weaving up to the desk and going, wow, man, <laughs> that was amazing. Can you do that again? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I could um, we could chat about rock and roll for for a long time, but but I think it might be good to to sort of get back on the the entrepreneurial path and um, <laughs> and uh, I think that your your coaching style because I remember I'm just trying to remember a time when I I came and watched you gave a, a really good talk. It was to a group of of people. I forget the name. You'll you'll remind me. There's a there's an organized a little organization there that, that meets, and um, and and you told your story, um, and and it was really a great encouragement to everyone to to follow and and to take action to to use your your words. So maybe maybe we could kind of pick up pick up there from from that talk and and because I guess in a way that was part of you getting going on what you're doing now. If, am I right on that? Tell me if I'm wrong. Can you remember, was it, oh, are you talking about, this was in the, of course, I immediately went to Zoom in my mind's eye, but I know this was uh, BC, right? Before Yeah, Corona. yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was like, we were in a room together. Um, uh, yeah. We had, we had nice food and we were downstairs in a cafe. Yeah. 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 yeah, I remember what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe you could just, tell me or remind me of a bit about the the talk and what you were what you were trying to get over um i can't remember i can give, you a, nudge. I can give you a it was i mean essentially it was it was your story uh-huh um of, of kind of what took you into you know you often use the word love around business yeah and and it seems that, that you were describing your way into this this love this passion that that's so so important um, for for what you might do I guess not just as an entrepreneur but I mean that's where you put your your focus but I guess whatever you're doing if you love what you're doing it's mm. it's a great thing mm. I think it's important look there's a lot of uh, bollocks talked about to follow your passion I think it's the worst advice anyone can give it's irresponsible i think it's a, it's a balance between heart and head in my own you know my my current belief as my mentor ed percival uh, um who's sadly no longer with us he had this brilliant phrase of uh, my current belief is something 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 and it, it it just demonstrates beautifully that we can change our opinions and beliefs and so um i really do believe that getting a balance between heart and head, between following a passion, 
and also doing the analysis. If you're going to be in business, seriously, you have to get a bit of both. You've got to get that balanced. And uh, either either extreme is no good. It'll fall it'll fall apart for one reason or another. Um, and so the the love part is all to do with the passion for loving what you do, but but balanced with analysis and thinking and yes some planning i do all advocate that now but then i'm a lot older when i was younger and when there's the energy of youth you know you can go wrong massively and then pick yourself up and go in a totally different direction so there's a bit of that in it as well and it's also an attitude a belief as far as how to treat people and i'm a real poacher turned gamekeeper because when you know i was 25 years in in uh, founding building businesses and so on um and i didn't act like the like i'm advocating now i was very single-minded i was very much on the i was very passionate about what we we're doing but very results driven and maybe didn't see people properly you know and empathize none of that i'm not claiming that at all however i've come round to that probably as a result of having my stroke in 2016. And that made a huge difference and realizing, you know, I'm human and things can go wrong. There's this sort of belief uh, overconfidence of, uh, I, well, it's everyone else, it never happened to me. It's that yeah. sort of rubbish. And then when that happened and stopped me in my tracks for six weeks and I couldn't walk and I was in hospital um, and right side gone, that's it, gone, you know, will it come back? But I thought, blimey, I'm human. And that kept brought me crashing down in a way uh, from a um, from the, the, those years of running businesses like that. And that then, I think, helped change my attitude more towards let's also be human and as well as making money and treating people in a certain way and doing business for the right reasons. So you know it's again a bit of a buzzword rich but purpose driven yeah you know or the the three p's you know purpose planet profit that type of thing of of um of getting a balance between things so that's come late in life really it's late in life so by but by the time you saw that speech it's that re it's relatively recent mm. given how long i've been involved in business yeah, and that, that's what I was thinking when, you know, in relation to the, the the talk, the speech that you gave that night, it was it was very much based on this this sort of transformation in in your approach and maybe a realization, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you were talking about that, you know, that that came through having that experience. Were, were there any sort of people involved as well who encouraged you down that line or people that you thought Oh yeah, they that that's given me some ideas around it. Or was it purely the experience of the of the stroke? Um, my wife Ruth, definitely, definitely, yeah, she's been a huge influence, and um, so it's conversations with her um, that have helped enormously. And of course, um, in your you'll know this from your work that it's often hard as hard or harder on the people around the person who's suffering from whatever they're suffering from and so she was very much affected by what happened to me so I think that also made a huge difference in yeah. terms of my approach yeah and and so when when you're now coaching the people that that you work with 
do you find that that increasingly the the modern if you use that term the modern entrepreneur is already person or people focused or do you have to kind of encourage no, people that no, too generalized it, it varies enormously i mean there there are a queue um uh, uh, there, there's a queue around several blocks to go and work at goldman sachs or to work with one one of the big uh big law firms or accountancy firms where the hours are 80 to 120 hours a week. But if you're going to be starting with a salary coming out of uni at 120, 150K a year, that they want to make money. Yeah. And they're focused on making money. And um, purpose and values and all that, it's a tick box exercise. They may say, oh, yeah, we have a vision, a mission, all the rest of it, but not really. So it's a spectrum, as it ever was. Yeah. as it ever was so it's a choice i think we all have we each have with our own lives being responsible for ourselves to say i'd like to live like this i'd like to do business like this i'd like to do this type of work or that type of work and we're absolutely spoiled rotten here in the uk despite all the difficulties i'm talking from a worldwide perspective and what that goes on in the in the third world countries compared to us in the industrial West and that have made money by, and it's very current, you know, polluting mm. the world, slavery. You think the British Empire, wherever you want to go, there's going to be a spectrum of people who are uh, out there. And then it's a question, I think, of choosing who I, so to speak, or you, who do we want to work with? And if I'm choosing to work and work with people who who love purpose, who are out to do good in the world, who who care as much or more about why they're in business as making money. That's just, it's just a choice. And I'm not, I'm not judging at all the ones who want to go and make gazillions. And if that's what they want to do, fine. That's, yeah. but it's just not for me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you, you've got to know that, that these options exist and, and depending on, you know, going back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, schooling and, and upbringing and whatnot, some people may not even be aware that there's the, a kind of a different way of, of doing it. Um, maybe, maybe in schools there, there needs to be more in the way of, of education about working opportunities. I know they have careers and this, that and the other, but... Um, but, but more along the lines of, of exposing kids to all the different opportunities that, that there are so they can make more of an informed choice. Well, then you're coming on to what is education for? Why do we have it? Um, and what are we trying to give the kids when they come out of school? And that's a huge conversation, which you know, I'm happy to go there. If you look at the difference between the way we do things here in this country compared, say, to Scandinavia, some of the Scandinavian countries, where it's much more rounded and it's much more with life skills than, than quote unquote, just passing exams yeah. and so on. And why, why is that? So, you know, going back to my education, but I think this is quite typical discussing. I remember to this day discussing um, uh, for A-level English, I think it was, as they were called, yeah, they're still called A-levels, O-levels and A-levels in those days, no, no GCSEs, some Shakespeare play, and I was get, we were, had a class discussion about some aspect of it, and being told, as were others, 
that's very interesting, Wick, but that's not what the examiner wants to hear. <laughs> and, but, and that's yeah, typical. So yeah. The, the purpose is if you do well in your exams, you'll go to a good university. If you do well in university, you'll get a good job. And the employers are asking the unis for certain things to turn out. So they've, they've got um, certain skills, the three R's, whatever. So we're bringing that up. So, of course, it's unnatural that you'd say if we were starting with a blank sheet of paper, we'd want people, kids to learn about money, about cooking, about running a, a home, about mortgages, about the world of work, loads of things. That, that aren't taught, they're not part of the curriculum. But no government here in the UK has ever, and I'm afraid I'm rather pessimistic, are going to change the entire system more towards the Scandinavian way of being more rounded, less exam focused, not really teaching academic stuff till much older, seven, eight, nine, you know. Um, now, funnily enough, um, uh, where, where I'm uh, living, um, is Forest Row in Sussex. And I'm here because my wife moved here with her first husband. So their kids could go to a school called Michael Hall, which is a, a Rudolf Steiner, Steiner Waldorf school. And that is more child centered. It is rounder. They do teach a lot of other skills. However, being part of the UK education system, they of course have to stick fundamentally to the, to the curriculum. But yeah, I agree with you. And I think it'd be great if that stuff was taught as normal as part of the standard curriculum, life yeah. skills. Yeah, yeah. But somehow my, my sceptical hat makes me think that, that if they did that, it would be too empowering to too many people. I don't know. But yeah, it's big. It's deep. It is. This is a deep one. We're getting we're getting deep. We won't we won't go we won't go deeper into that now. Maybe that'd be for another another conversation. It's, I think we we're both pretty passionate about that. But but coming back to to business, um, and you know we've we've spoken about the importance or, or um, the relevance of being person centered and and having a love and a passion, but also being able to analyze things in in the right way. Well, what are the other key key areas would you say that, that stand out that are important oh can you be i didn't follow that question rich what, say that so, again yeah no of course so thinking about you know the sort of the, the areas that are important for someone who's more of an entrepreneurial spirit who who wants to pursue something or they are pursuing something um they, they've got this sense of work about working with people um and I've got a passion. And you also mentioned the, this, this analysis and, you know, the, the, uh, the figures and your strategies and, and that kind of thing. Now, I mean, maybe it's more talking a little bit more about that or maybe, but are there some other areas as well that are, that are particularly important that you think that people should be thinking about? Do you mean if they want to go into business are you talking about or be... Yeah, so it could be. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It could be either. It could be someone who's already in. You know, they're trying. They're they're, they're giving it a go, or perhaps someone who's thinking about it. So, kind of the let's say the early stages, for argument's sake. Um, I think there is a sense 
and it comes a lot from the media, um, the Dragon's Dens, the Apprentices, other media, other print media, social media of business being exciting. Anyone can do it. You can just start. You don't need it. Of course, you don't need a license, right? You don't have to have anything other than you just choose to do it. So I think like anything, it needs uh, capability and skills. Um, uh, you know, a, a few lucky people may be able to jump into a manual car with, with a, um, a gear lever and a clutch and immediately in seconds they're off. But 99.99% of people have to be taught. And they, they, and there is, you do have to have a license, but even if you didn't have to have a license, um, they, they would learn, I believe. It's just, well, of course, I, I don't know how to drive that. And um, they get some, uh, some lessons, they, wherever they get them from. And not only do they have to learn to drive the car and how the car works, but also the roads and all that stuff, the obvious stuff. I don't see running a business any different from that. So, you know, there's a sense in which, well, I would say that anyway, but teaching people how to run a business is something I do and yeah. what the basics are and all the skills needed. And, but because of my background and I hate chalk and talk and I hate academic stuff, my style is to make it as practical as possible and as relatable as possible and as English as possible rather than come up with fancy words and try and impress people. It's all about trying to make it real for them. Yeah. And that they then can understand things to the extent that now at least I know what I'm doing. Um, I may have learned what I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know before. Yeah. It's yeah. a Donald Rumsfeld moment. Yeah. Don't, don't know what you don't know. That's what I would advocate that people do. And there's this unbelievable, I couldn't believe this stat rich i found this out a few years ago that there are roughly three quarters of a million new businesses started up in the uk every year wow yeah wow that's enormous amount i'd never have guessed that yeah me neither i was shocked and then the nut the next statistic proves my point which is depending which stats you read um somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of them have gone under within three years. Yeah. And there are loads of reasons for it. You could plaster a wall with all the reasons, the wrong product, the wrong service, they opened in the wrong place, they should have been this street, not that street, whatever. You can, but from my angle, under, underlying it is a lack of capability. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a sense, there's there's no reason why any of those people who set up that that business in a way would would definitely be successful. As you said, no. you know, the car analogy is a great one. You know, yes, the odd person might get in and be able to go off and drive, but the vast majority will keep stalling it and drive into bollards and all the rest of it. And there's no reason why they would be able to drive straight away. So no. why, why do we have this expectation that um, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to set up a shop. I'm going to sell some clothes. Or well, what? What's your background in that? Well, I just thought I'd do it. Sounds like a good idea. And you know, they've got shops. I'll, I'll... yeah. It's so obvious, isn't it? When when you put it in those terms, it's so obvious that that we would need help. Mm -hmm. And and I'd be very privileged actually to to spend 
time with you. So I, I know what you're you're talking about there, and I can absolutely verify you know what you've said there about you know the the language and the the practicality. And there's this message that's always stuck in my head right from that first coffee, not date coffee. <laughs> Good, thank you for clarifying. Um, and that was and that was to you. And I told you some stuff about what I was doing. And you said to me, you got to sharpen your message. you got to sharpen that arrow. And just keep sharpening the arrow. Now, I think I know what that means. But maybe you could explain what you mean. Yeah, and I remember that. I, I use that analogy to this day. And it's, it's nothing complicated. It, it's meant to be a simple idea, but not easy to do. And that is we are bombarded with um, messages, with um, advertisements, with promotion, with everything. Uh, we're bombarded. And, and as the years go by, there are more and more, there's more and more and more and more noise. So reversing that, if, if you have a, a business and you're trying to get heard, the, the, the assumption, which is the wrong way round, is to, to get to start with, I'll sell to anybody that gives me some money because I, I need to get the business off the ground. Whereas I'm saying counterintuitively that the narrower, the more specific we are about who we're trying to sell to, about what product or service it is, and what the positioning of it is, what, what we want our brand, whether it's Alan Witt, Richmond, Stace, Apple, it doesn't matter the size, principles are the same. It, 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 they're the ones that get the cut through. And it, it, it's, it's only necessary to get a business off the ground, to have a relatively small number of people right at the beginning who think this is a good idea. So if we can appeal to that limited number of people to get it off the ground and stick at that arrow, that sharpness of that arrow, then a business has got more chance of succeeding than trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, I remember when you first told me that I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you work on it and, and, I would say in my, you know, I'm still working on it. And as we said, it was probably seven years ago. And, and maybe I'm like, you're geeky with sound stuff. I'm, I'm very geeky with, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing and, and how I'm doing it and, and forever kind of trying to build on that and sharpen the message. So for me, it's just an ongoing process. It's ongoing part of the journey. It's, there's no end point to that. There's no kind of destination as such. Would that, would that be right in your mind as yeah. well? especially if we enjoy what we're doing and there is that passion part of it. We're again, even more privileged to, to be doing something we love and that's making money or giving us a living um, and why stop. And so there is a bit of a, um, you know, thing about, I've got a bit of a thing about retirement, which might be to do with the fact that my grandfather um, um, loved what he was doing. He's in business all his life, had a successful business when he got into his 70s 80s and this is going back 40 years i think yeah um my parents and and aunts and uncles understandably were saying oh you know it's time to think about retirement and slowing down and you know he kept going didn't want to give up 
and in his early 80s it's time to go out every morning be in the factory he made soft they made, he made soft drinks um and um eventually they wore him down and he was in good health and but they wore him down after many years all for loving him you know it was mm-hmm. all the right reason didn't want to see him working himself into the ground and then he with my father's help i think he he sold the business and retired and he died within six months and in my now i this is my belief my interpretation of that may may not be right but it speaks to a, a very famous book by victor frankel called man's search for meaning where if they people we humans don't have a purpose we don't have hope nothing to look forward to, no reason for living, whatever that is, which could be children, by the mm-hmm. way, or or a hobby or sailing or anything, but a passion for something, a reason to live, then our system shut down. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very powerful story. And actually, that's an, it's an amazing book. Um, it is. And I think, I, you know, I share that, that view. You know, you, you, you help people bring their purpose to life in terms of, of business um, mm. and uh, it's it's such a big part of someone's life yeah think how, how many hours we spend at work and again those few who have privileged enough to be able to choose as opposed to you know i haven't had the opportunities and where we are in somewhere i'm just for some reason thinking of a steel town or a mining town or wherever in sheffield i remember years ago um uh starting a factory uh, and having very little money we've already got one small one um 50 people or whatever and we we needed a second one to do a slightly different job uh, and um we were limited cash wise and at that time there were grants given for starting up in deprived areas so you know uh, and that was sheffield when that happened you know the steel industry and so on would start to go abroad the whole that whole thing what are people going to do they don't have a choice they can't just choose, oh i know i'll start a business and i put wealthy parents will back me so when you're in that situation and you just want to get uh, make a living and you know keep keep the um, food on the table pay the electricity etc pay maybe you're renting maybe you have you've got tiny mortgage there isn't that choice so i'm still always I just want to be conscious that we're talking about a relatively small number of us but those that can have that choice, then I think we owe it to ourselves to make the choice very consciously yeah, and be very mindful about w- what we're doing and why we're doing it and for the right reasons. It, yeah. a, it's, a, it's one opinion, that's all. Yeah, yeah again, I think, you know, the, as you know from our, our other many chats that we've had, we're on the same page with that. And it's, you know, re- remembering that it is, you're, as you say, a privilege to be able to choose to work, not only choose the, the type of work we're doing, but also the way that we can do it. And and that, you know, as you said, when you look around and see how other people, they don't have those choices, um, you know, you do feel very, very, very fortunate. Uh, yeah. in that. And in a sense, I suppose that's why, one of the reasons why you then, you know, you want to do something that's purpose-driven to to make make it worthwhile. You know, be useful. 
be useful, you know, and serve something greater than yourself because you're lucky enough to be able to, to do that. Mm. Um, so I, I think that would be an excellent place to, um, to stop this. this I, well, I'm seeing this as sort of part one, actually. Okay. Um, Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate so, it. So I enjoy our conversation. Now, if people want to um, come and find out more about what you're up to and see how you work um, in hopefully come and do some work with you, which I definitely recommend. Um, I mean, not only is it practical, but it's, it's, it's good fun as well. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so where, where can people find you? Um, my website. Um, I, I realised a few years ago that this internet thing is taking off and I better get on, on board. So um, it's alanwick.com. That's it. Okay. Brilliant. And, and you've got your own podcast, haven't you? Yes. It's, it's um, well, actually the, the podcast is incidental, Rich. It's, it's actually, I'm showing off now, but it's a radio show. Ah, and okay. look, it may be again, gen my generation, but I love it. I love having something going out on the airwaves. So the radio shows every week um, on uh, Meridian FM, which is a local station here in Sussex, but it does go worldwide to about tiny, you know, 25, 30,000 people. There's a weekly business show, which then accidentally becomes a podcast. But really, I've people have said, you're mad, you've got to make it into a proper podcast and all that. And I've just met somebody recently who has, says, I'll show you all how to do all that stuff. Right. So it will become one eventually. Excellent. Well, I mean, the conversations are fascinating. Um, so I'll, I'll point people on the, the page that I make for this episode to, to those, those things so that they can come and have a, have a listen. Thank you. Um, but uh, as ever, it's been, uh, it's been great to chat and uh, hear your stories. So thanks for your time. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for inviting me, Rich. Not at all. Not at all. Speak soon. You bet.